Welcome to each and every one of you. My name is Glenda Cruz. I'm the head of the Center for Science, Technology and Innovation Indicators. Um, but in my previous life, I worked in education and skills development for a number of decades. And we work very closely with those who are involved in this seminar. Um, just to remind you, last July, we had a workshop on skills development um, with the World Bank and with Youth Employment Services. And at that was an extremely useful session and we agreed that we should have more of these national events where we bring together expertise across different organizations to debate these critical issues. And I don't need to state the obvious, but under the conditions of COVID, these issues become even more significant and interestingly, I think it's fair to say that the COVID conditions actually give a positive boost to promoting the kind of agendas that we will be talking to today. So you've all responded to come to a seminar on youth and the future of work and what the HSRC team are sharing with us today is a new approach centered on the idea of refracted economies. So thinking of the economies in different ways, which allows us to reimagine the opportunities for youth livelihoods. And um, this is an era of what amazing technological innovations that we have. And as I've said, the conditions of COVID give us a push to put in place a lot of the digital strategies that we have been talking about for a long time. So it makes this greater receptivity and openness and a desire to look for good ideas that could be put into place. So we have three panelists today and then we have two respondents. Our first panelist is Professor Charlene Schwartz. She is the divisional executive for a newly constituted program at the HSRC called Inclusive Economic Development. And her expertise and her main work centers on the just inclusion of youth in a transforming society. She's published a number of books, which I can refer you to if you Google her name. And um, we look really forward to hearing this work that you're driving, Charlene. And she's supported by Mr. Chris Chetty, who you've already met, giving us a quick Zoom tutorial. And he's a chief researcher in the same division, Inclusive Economic Development. And his specialization is research on the digital economy. And his focus is on digital inequality, digital literacy, fintech, and the future of work. So he's well qualified for this discussion today. And then finally, um, a very important person is Sepati Mokema. She's a master's intern in the same program and she will be managing our chat and your questions on the chat functionality and will be assisting us with the discussion. And then we've got two important discussion discussants, one from the public sector, one from the private-ish sector, the more the MPO sector. The first is Mr. Imran Patel, the Deputy Director General for Socioeconomic Innovation Partnerships in our Department of Science and Innovation. 
and his work aims to enhance the growth and development priorities of government through targeted science technology based innovation interventions and particularly to develop strategic partners with other government departments, industries, research institutions and communities. And then we're very, very happy to have Dr. Tashmir Ismail Saville with us. She's the CEO of the Youth Employment Services and this Youth Employment Service, sorry, um, and this is a joint initiative between business, labor and government that was set up to address South Africa's youth employment challenge. And the task they've set themselves is to create 1 million work experiences in South Africa. So this is a, um, a, a critical innovation that's been making some major inroads in a very short space of time. So we welcome each and every one of you and we, I'm going to ask Charlene to take over and to begin with the presentation. Then Krish will be sharing a part of the presentation and Charlene will conclude, whereupon we will open up for general discussion. Thank you very much, Glenda, and um, good afternoon, colleagues. Really good to have so many of you here today. Um, this idea about the refracted economies is something that we've been thinking about in the HSRC for the last year and a half. Um, and we really are trying to put um, a new idea into um, the academic community, into the practitioner community, um, and into government's um, frame of reference, because we think it is helpful um, to move us forward. So why this discussion? Youth unemployment, 49%, possibly after COVID, much bigger than that. Um, what are young people's views about work? Um, the changing nature of work, the revolution in tech, the changing nature of education, as we've experienced right now, TVETs and what should be done about TVETs, um, this focus on entrepreneurship that we have at the moment, a focus on STEM skills, is it right? And then of course, lessons from our, our current crisis. The revolution in tech, um, 3D printing, what's going to, uh, what, what is that going to do to jobs? Are we going to um, stop importing things? Are we going to start printing our own ventilator components and 3D and um, masks um, as we've been doing right now? Uh, what about fintech, big data, 5G, biotech, blockchain, machine learning, digitization, various platforms, robotics, artificial intelligence. All those are going to come down the line at a, at a pace that we are going to be surprised at. Uh, two nights ago, um, our president said that the new economy must be founded on fairness, empowerment, justice, and equality. It must use every resource, every capability, every innovation we have in the service of people. Never heard such a clear definition of what we mean by inclusive economic development. It caused all sorts of debates on social media, people calling them platitudes, calling them, uh, calling for more definition, but it certainly has caught the imagination of the country. And it's something that we really must take seriously going forward. Um, and what are the lessons from the COVID crisis? I'm sure we could spend at least two hours speaking about this, but just mine, my reflections um, thinking in, in the last day or two. Um, we've been talking about essential work. Does that mean that there's pointless work? Um, we've been talking about the role of the state in people's lives and livelihoods. Um, we've been talking about what needs to be supported. 
the universal basic income versus SAA, for example. Um, we know that some jobs and some economic activities are not coming back. People are taking this opportunity to start again, to press reset on a number of industries and activities economically. We know that inequality will destroy us all, whether we are wealthy or whether we are impoverished. Um, social cohesion and the social compact does not hold because of the levels of inequality in our country. We see that by the protests that are happening right now in Cape Town around the country as we speak. We also know that we don't need as much as we thought we might um, around consumption. We know that the climate and planet, um, the planet's well-being are, inter are interlinked. The economics of climate change and of preserving our planet are, are, are interlinked. We're realizing that data is a basic necessity for everyone. It's a little bit like water and electricity. Um, and we've come to see that in the last four or five weeks. Um, we've come to think about localized production being critical. We've come to ask questions about globalization as it's been known in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. We've come to look at informal trading as being the salvation and the lifeblood of so many in a new way. Um, and we've come to ask questions about how we've got to limit corruption in every way if what the president has announced is going to get down to people who need it. So those are some of my reflections. I'm sure you have some of your own. But what is the current talk from young people about work? Well, a lot of my work, I'm a, I'm a youth sociologist and I spend a lot of my time doing empirical research with young people. When I ask young people what they want to be when they grow up, whether they are 11 or 17, they talk about the big jobs, the doctors, the lawyers, the pilots. And then they sometimes say, well, if I can't do that, well, I'll be happy to be a taxi driver or a domestic worker. I spent a lot of my time in Langa, and I have a book called Ikasi, where I spoke to a lot of young people about their aspirations. Um, and that's an important piece to think of, is that young people seem to be quite fixated on big jobs. Um, there's been a lot coming from government about needing to teach entrepreneurship in schools. But we also know that only 2% of youth entrepreneurship ventures succeed. 2%. So we want to ask ourselves, why are we focusing on entrepreneurship? And how might this refracted economies framework that, I want to, that I'm going to talk about today, how does that help us to talk about entrepreneurship in a different way? We talk about a skills mismatch and we talk about a need to focus on STEM skills. And yet in the labor market intelligence project that the HSRC embarked on as a partnership um, in the last five, six years, we know that 29% of undergraduates pursued STEM courses, but only 10% get employed in that field. So yes, STEM skills are important, but they're not actually that important for the labor market. We all need the critical thinking skills that STEM skills provide, but we don't need the content that STEM skills provide. We need free university education. That's been a mantra for the last four or five years. Um, but we also know that so many more young people are choosing university over TVETs. And why is that the case? Um, and yet no, university notoriously doesn't focus on the practical skills needed um, for the changing, work of, of, um, the changing world of work. So how do young people enter this world of work without the ability to read, write, and reason? We know that we are still lacking in terms of quality education um, uh, in, the most, in the widespread way that we'd like it to be. 
Many young people are still unable to solve the problems and develop confidence and handle and possess basic technology. Um, working teams manage complexity and imagine possibilities beyond those big jobs. And so what could we be doing differently? That's the question that this uh, refracted economies idea is trying to address. So what are the big ideas? Well, could we recharacterize jobs into a range of color-coded or refracted economies taken from that metaphor of white light passing through a prism and becoming refracted into a number of, of individual colors? Will that help us to see where new jobs are emerging? Will it help us to see where jobs are likely to disappear? Will it help us to give work of all forms new esteem, new dignity, new decency? So, could we use a range of continue to characterize kinds of jobs? So instead of calling jobs skilled or unskilled or formal, an economy, formal or informal, can we come to think of it as a range of continua? Can we differentiate between jobs, opportunities, livelihoods, careers, work, employment, with a focus on change over time? So that young people may begin with a small opportunity that can change into a livelihood, something that can put food on the table, and in the future may actually become um, employment um, or a career. And that when you start at 18 or at 23, that that might not be the way you continue, but for many, that might be the way that you continue going forward. But all of those opportunities, livelihoods, job, we imbue with a sense of decency and dignity. Might we map out the implications for schools for TVETs, for universities, for young people, and for those who support them, NGOs, parents, um, and, and institutions in our communities. And then a, a research uh, proposal. So historically, the economy has been uh, classified into three uh, 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 sectors, uh, primary, uh, secondary, and tertiary. Uh, the primary sector has been on extraction, mainly around mining and, and agriculture. The secondary um, economy has been focused on production and manufacturing, and the tertiary economy has been uh, focused on services. So what we're saying is, why don't we classify the economy in, different, in a different way that will focus some attention on um, opportunities? So we've come up with 11 colors. It could have been seven, it could have been uh, a lot more. We started with seven and then we've looked at a few um, definitions and descriptions, and we've come up with a few more. And then we asked ourselves, what is the principle on which we are classifying or color coding the, these economies? And we've come up with the idea that it's the purpose of the job or the opportunity or the activity. So an orange economy, um, the purpose of the job is to provide creative, cultural, leisure products and services. And examples would be music, arts, um, architecture, um, uh, cultural services, craft making, those kinds of activities. The green economy um, would be to enable the production and use of clean energy resources predominantly. The blue economy, to utilize water resources for economic growth, um, including um, uh, fishing and algae growing and um, even oil extraction, for example. Um, and you can see that every now and again, uh, you could put a job into either a blue or a bronze economy, but um, bear with us um, as, we, as we think through this. Um, the lavender economy, to provide care and help. So the caring and helping professions, 
everything from child, um, uh, early childhood development uh, through to um, domestic work, but also um, nursing and medical professions. So the caring and helping professions, we would put those into a category together. To provide and conserve public goods would be the yellow economy. So in the public service, people who work in NGOs, people who work in government, people who, um, who work to offer education um, and research as part of a yellow economy. So, um, so the focus would be uh, public good and public service in some, in some form. Now, even though as I go through the slide, you'll see that some of these terms you're probably familiar with. The orange economy exists as a term in the literature. The green economy, the blue economy exists. The lavender economy doesn't exist as a category. It's one that we've created. The yellow economy, we've created it. Um, sometimes it's called the third sector kind of um, public, uh, public goods, work in the, for the public good, um, but it doesn't often include um, public service uh, government uh, sector. The bronze economy, uh, to produce and supply raw materials, food and minerals, related manufactured products, agriculture and mining. That's quite a big economy. And when I looked at the South African categorization of CETAs, so many of the 23 CETAs fall into the bronze economy because it's around production and manufacturing. Um, but they're also um, what we would call the silver economy to maintain and develop infrastructure, construction, plumbing, electrical, uh, technicians, transport. The gold economy to manage finance and assets, the platinum economy, kind of the tech economy where we are actually inventing and creating tech in order to make other work possible um, in itself. So people who write programs, people who uh, produce robots, people who um, manufacture um, uh, blockchain systems, etc. Et uh, the red economy, um, so this is not quite tongue-in-cheek, but what is the purpose of work in the red economy? Well, it's to circumvent the law in order to make money. Um, so think about uh, counterfeit cigarette uh, makers at the moment. Think about people who are poaching abalone and creating a whole economy uh, around that. And then the invisible economy, work that is unrecognized. And yes, of course, there's overlap with um, some uh, helping and caring professions, but we want to leave that as, a, as an economy. So classifying work according to its purpose is how we would define the refracted economy. So why would we do that? Um, it's not just a way of uh, producing a, a, a pretty colorful slide, um, but it's really for us to ask the question, how, um, um, well, it's, it's basically to ask the question, how will work in each of these sectors change? What work is available? What work might we imagine in each sector? And it's also to move us away from defining work only as skilled or unskilled, entrepreneurial or business as usual, formal or informal, public or private, blue collar or white collar, professional, artisanal, individual or collective, permanent or gig. So let's take an example. We often talk about a gig economy, but can you see that if we go, if we look at our set of refracted economies, there can be a gig kind of job in each of those color-coded economies. That each of those color-coded economies lend itself to more or less levels of skill that you could be an entrepreneur in all of those areas um, of, the, of, of different economies. 
And so when we talk about entrepreneurship, we frequently think of only in the manufacturing sector, only um, in the bronze economy. But actually, we could be an entrepreneur in the orange economy. We could be an entrepreneur in the lavender economy. Um, and so that for us is really important that there's a, a distinction between the, the, the areas in which young people may find work and the characteristics of that job and how that job might change over time. So another way of, of thinking about characteristics is to say there's different levels of knowledge and technology um, that um, each of those potential jobs use and employ. And so let's not talk about the tech the, the technology economy as much as knowing that there's technology that could be applied to the orange economy as much as to the lavender economy or to the yellow economy um, or even the red economy. Um, there's a lot of poaching that's going on here where people are using all sorts of electronic media um, in order to kind of circumvent uh, police, um, you know, uh, engagement, etc. Um, there's levels of creativity, sustainability, and compliance in all of those um, refracted economies that I've referred to. The ILO um, are talking really a lot about decent and dignified work and what that means. Um, and some of the definitions are that work must be respected by a community, must be of benefit to others, must have opportunities for growth, must have fair treatment and fair income. And all of those we can map onto our refracted economies. We can ask to what extent is this work, is this job, is this opportunity respected of benefit, have opportunities for growth, for fair income, um, for fair treatment. So I know that I've gone through this really quickly. Um, and one of the things that I, I'm really clear that I want us to understand is that we would like this to become the basis for some really deep thinking and deep thinking with um, existing categorizations of work in the economies, um, both internationally and in South Africa. And of course, we've got a lot more thinking to do about it. But the idea is, will it hope, might it open up um, an, an exploration of opportunities for young people going forward? And so um, I'm going to hand over to Chris, who's going to talk about really these, these economies um, and the current job description from the ILO, um, but also um, how technology may actually influence um, some of these economies and give you some examples. So over to you, Krish. Thank you, Charlene. I'd like to go over our analysis of the ILO's occupation classifications using our refracted economies framework. Um, we worked through a list of about 391 occupations and then we placed them into a relevant color code based on our understanding of the purpose of the job as Charlene's just described. So uh, I'd like to then touch on three economies using this approach, starting with the orange. Uh, the orange, as Charlene mentioned, relates to occupations which provide creative, cultural, and leisure products or services. Uh, we thereafter place jobs into levels, be it at entry level, intermediate, or senior levels. And then as we were going through this exercise, we looked to see, is the job under threat from technological advances? I've then highlighted these under red, or if the job was likely to evolve based on technology influence, and we've highlighted that in blue. So if we start with creative pursuits, we found a gap among entry level jobs in the creative sector using the ILO's occupation classification. So, 
if the assistants or apprentices to creative works on so in in, in this uh, outline what you see is your assistants and your apprentices in this space have not been counted using that framework at the intermediate level we see uh, the typical type of jobs are your handicraft based work which involves glasswork ceramics textile weaving but also other creative forms uh, of expression which includes jobs such as uh, those that are clowns or acrobats or magicians, people that are creatively expressing themselves. We also find many jobs in the intermediate space are repetitive or performed by machine operators, and these are likely to be replaced with technological advances. But you'll also start to find a strong role to be played by cobots, bots which work closely with a human lead. So for example, in the glass blowing type job, here, the machine could be very useful in protecting the worker from the furnace, but the worker at the same time is in control of the creative aspects of that job. But to do this, you'd require some very specialized uh, training. At the senior level, we find similar types of jobs, but they'll require more advanced skills or knowledge. We also find less digital impact at this particular level. In the cultural space, uh, we have jobs which are performed by your librarians, your museum curators, and other similar professions. And then in the leisure space, most of the jobs are involved in the entertainment, the, the entertainment, the uh, hospitality or tourism uh, sectors. In the lavender economy, which focuses on occupations which involve caring and helping, we find in the helping space, uh, limited impact in the physical aspects of the job due to the digital disruption, but technology, largely through platforms, are providing new means for workers to connect with prospective homeowners or people in need of help. Uh, these jobs are mostly uh, uh, based at home or office-based work, which involves cleaning or helping. Examples would include your domestic workers, your laundry workers, your cooks. Uh, when we look at uh, the position of these jobs many fall within the entry-level space and a key task for us in this project is to try and find a potential career path for us to progress into those intermediate level jobs. In the caring sector, you find jobs related to healthcare, veterinary services, faith-based work, social workers, dietary workers. And in this sector, technology usually influences how workers communicate, or in the tools that they use to carry out their work. It's unlikely that you'll find technology fully replaces the work, but perhaps will make them more effective at their jobs. In the bronze economy, which relates to all jobs involving the production and supply of raw materials and related manufacturing jobs, uh, this would include aspects which relate to the extractive economy, agriculture, manufacturing, and supply chains, as Charlene had mentioned. Um, and based on the extent of the blue and the red colorings that we have on this table, you can see that most, uh, which would be 89% uh, of the 79 professions which are listed under bronze, are likely to be replaced or evolved due to the effects of technology disruption. Uh, there's a need really uh, to focus on upskilling and reskilling these workers so they can tr transition from roles such as basic laborers and then gain access to higher skilled positions. Much of the, the training these workers received is non-formal training, 
which is uh, gained in the course of their experience, but how do we go about accrediting their experience uh, so that their knowledge is actually recognized? Another question is, can we expect the, the employer to take responsibility for reskilling the workers? And what role should government play in the sector as we started thinking about reskilling as a whole? Also in the supply chain side in particular, I'd like to mention, it's important for us to recognize the contributions of the informal workers which are supporting the communities. Their role can, can be forgotten despite uh, their contributions that they make. I'd now like to go over a few examples of technology advancements per each color-coded economy and see how they're impacting each of these economies, starting with uh, the orange economy. Uh, here we see new opportunities for creative workers which are being found uh, through the gig economy. Uh, new digital tools also give rise to new forms of art. Uh, so for example, more people are becoming familiar with Photoshop, and so those that are more graphically inclined are now able to produce memes which has become very popular and is a new method for us to market or sell our services. Musicians have an easier task of being, gaining access to the market uh, through iTunes and other music platforms. In Cape Town in particular, uh, uh, creators have an opportunity to engage the Cape Town Film Studio through crewpencil.com. Uh, here extras could find work via the app and full companies can then go about sourcing uh, their supplies online. So in short, you can find new opportunities to create, to collaborate, but there's also a need for workers to think about developing their marketing and their digital skills. Another example in the orange economy would be involving the digitization of textile work. Uh, new technologies are disrupting the manufacturing and supply of the tax textile industry, but with appropriate infrastructure or skills, one can now develop customize products by embedding data into the production of clothing. So there's a potential for new uh, textile small businesses to be created if you have knowledge about textile manufacturing, these technologies, and also if you can invest in such technologies to start your business. In the blue economy, we have an interesting app which was set up to support the fishing community. Uh, this is a South African based, it follows a cooperative supply chain model requiring the fishermen uh, to log data about their catch and their experience and then the app then connects them to a distribution network uh, to reach restaurants and families interested in getting fresh fish. Uh, they are in operation at the moment and actually one of the, uh, the few essential services which are operating under lockdown. Uh, by using the cooperative model the app also shows that new businesses don't need to follow old organization structures and technology can actually provide a means for us to start democratizing the workplace. To be engaged on the app, you need to have digital skills, a suitable device, and a bank account, but it does empower these workers and gives them greater control over their supply chain. In the green economy, we need to relook at the entire energy ecosystem. For us to move away from fossil fuels to clean energy, we need a complete shift in infrastructure and knowledge. So we need to develop new cost-effective products that must be installed and then maintained. And this is an important word I wanna to touch on here. We need new imagination regarding how this entire ecosystem will be built and what sort of specialists we need in the clean energy sector, which will be able to apply their knowledge in multiple areas to manage the production and distribution 
uh, of the energy. In the yellow economy, I'd like to highlight the importance of online tutoring, particularly in this COVID-19 era. Um, we all see the tremendous burden that our teachers and our parents are, are facing right now um, to ensure that their kids actually stay on track with the curriculum. But mass tutoring also provides a solution to try and balance this load and improve the quality of learning and also create new jobs, which we are desperate for uh, in South Africa. There's a few new apps in the country which are offering these services, but for this to really be effective, we need massive investments in digital infrastructure, digital schools for our learners and our tutors that, that will be providing these services. In the laboratory economy, location-based matching platforms such as Sweet South are creating new jobs, linking domestic workers with homeowners. Uh, the app is offering structured, low-skill work, but requires workers to possess a smartphone and data to find work. They must be digitally literate and have a bank account. It's important to keep in mind that there are some challenges though with platform-based work, despite the benefits uh, of job creation. One, workers are treated as independent contractors and are not covered by the provisions in South Africa's labor law at present. Uh, the platform also dictates how much you are paid, but then the platform doesn't consider themselves to be an employer. Uh, and, but on the plus side, by using the app, the homeowner and the domestic worker have a clearer sense about what the job involves and that it's providing a means uh, to find new work. In the bronze economy, which involves manufacturing and supply chains, we are seeing the very important role that 3D printers are playing to save lives due to the coronavirus pandemic. Charlene touched on this. In South Africa, we have universities which are using their 3D printers to produce surgical face shields, which are difficult to source due to global shortages that we experience at the moment. And in Italy, we found an Italian hospital was able to produce oxygen valves for ventilators, which are critical at the moment. And they did so using a 3D printer. And uh, if you think about it, the, the patented valve cost yeah, 11,000 US dollars, but the 3D printed valve actually was produced for a cost of $1. So these examples show the, the need for a greater reliance on local manufacturing. You can use new technologies to solve problems if you have knowledge about the problem and if you have an understanding about how technology could be applied. In the silver economy, which focuses on construction related professions, there are various new jobs which need to be filled right now. Uh, new technologies are entering the household which require specific digital skills. In Cape Town, due to our drought, we installed a large number of digital water meters. We need workers to maintain this infrastructure. Solar water heaters are becoming more prevalent and they also require new skills. The same goes for electronic gate motors. Uh, then we're also pushing fiber installation and trying to phase out our copper lines but we need uh, the installation and maintenance workers to actually understand the difference between these infrastructure to ensure the, the, the longevity of the fiber lines. In the gold economy, I want to touch on two important types of uh, development. One, mobile money is proving to be very popular in East Africa, and it's helping to increase financial inclusion in this region. One, the service is free and it's accessible across many vendors in the country. Uh, in the countries in that region. Uh, but the service also requires that new workers are, are 
set up to support the customers. Agent bankers have been placed in areas where banks struggle to build fully-fledged branches and they provide advice and support uh, direct to consumers. On the supply side of financial services, technology is more closely embedded in all aspects of the industry. These are creating new specialized workers. For example, you get a FinTech liaison now. That's someone who specializes in creating partnerships between banks and FinTech institutions. RegTech specialists, these are regulators who now must specialize in technology. Sustainable wealth managers, these are uh, wealth managers who need to understand green bond investments and the, the, the specifics that go with that. Crypto forecasters, somebody who can actually read the trends of a crypto market despite it moving so quick to, uh, quickly. Cybersecurity specialists, the entire industry is dependent on security and thus there's a greater need for us to really specialize uh, in this area. And then lastly for me, I'd just like to look at the platinum economy, which is the high tech sector. And I'd like to actually focus on the non-technical work which exists in, in the sector. So for example, you get help desk officers. You can do this job if you're able to troubleshoot computer problems. Uh, social media uh, marketing, this is possible if you know how to market a business to online, uh, to online markets. Animation, if you, you if you're able to learn animation software, you can build animations for small businesses. Uh, user experience designers. In this job here, you can start designing the look and the feel of a website without actually needing to write the code. So the, the message I'd really like to share here is that there are jobs which exist, uh, perhaps for the self-employed, which can then also serve small businesses and improve economic growth from that, from that angle. But we need greater organization, better understanding of the problems, and then also how technologies can go about solving these problems. Uh, back to you, Shalini. So really, those examples that Krish has given you are the kind of examples that we've done in the last week. And the idea is that if we had a really big research project with a whole bunch of partners, we could come up with, as, as practitioners, as NGOs, as, as academics, we could come up with a, a, a huge compendium of opportunities that could be available or could become available. Now, of course, we still need um, there to be demand for these opportunities. There need to be people who can pay for uh, the, the kind of work that we, we're thinking that young people could be involved in. But the, the key for us is that we stop thinking um, just in terms of, oh, let's have entrepreneurs. Let's start thinking in a very broad way about entrepreneurs in multiple places um, and sectors. So the proposed research project that we are embarking on from the HSRC is how do we increase livelihood and work opportunities for young people? And how might this refracted economies framework help us to recognize new opportunities for work for TVET uh, colleges and for primary and secondary school career guidance programs on the African continent um, in the context of technological innovation. So it's a lofty proposal for, for a research uh, project, but there are a few pieces that are, are kind of are central to it. Um, so what research are we going to need to anticipate how these technological innovations will impact on opportunities for youth? Um, in all of these digital uh, revolutionary uh, disruptions that are coming our way that are here, we need to do some work. Um, uh, what about um, 
TVETs. How are TVETs going to uh, change their course offerings in order to really delve into some of the opportunities that the green economy, the blue economy are going to offer and that the lavender economy are going to offer? So TVET offerings, I think, is really important. And I know there's work going on in these areas in some places and, in, and often piecemeal. And I know that um, Department of Higher Education and Training have got some work going on reimagining career guidance. Um, but how might it be better to ask young people to do a project on, a, on, on the orange economy in primary school to kind of uh, develop their sense of imagination about possibilities? And I know that possibilities aren't enough and that there must be opportunities. But just to re uh, reimagine, I suppose, in primary school, in early high school, um, in grade nine, in grade 11 and 12, at university, at TVETs, and, and to, to invite our NGOs to really help young people think in a different way about um, uh, opportunities, job opportunities, careers, um, as well as livelihoods. What can they do now to get by um, and how might that develop into something in the future? So that's a really important piece. And, um, and the components of the study is really uh, uh, to understand the conceptual and rationale of it. Um, so some of the kind of uh, very academic work around the differentiation, um, but also some of the practical issues around the definitions of a refracted economy. And I know we haven't got those definitions completely right yet um, because this work is really in its early stage. The tech into refracted economies, um, the, the career guidance, the TVETs, and then the synthesis, as we go through this research study, to keep putting it into practice, which is why we're so excited to be talking with YES, um, but also to be talking with DSI and, and DHET, because we want this to become part of um, the thinking going, going forward. And in the rest of the presentation, I've just described some of the learning activities for the study, and I'm not going to go through it um, at all, but it's in the presentation. And I know that somebody asked, um, is the presentations going to be shared? And for sure, um, Krish has already sent it out via email to everybody who's attending. Um, and it will be recorded and we'll put it up on, on, on YouTube. But what are the concluding takeaways? It's really important um, for me as an academic researcher, as a sociologist of youth, but also as a person who's interested in justice and an inclusive economic development for us to rehumanize and dignify all forms of work. Um, from uh, across these refracted economies. Um, it's, it's important for us to formalize and regularize informality and recognize, recognize it as a decent livelihood and something that must be part of our world. It's important for us to think about localizing production, um, data and tech, a tech tool as essential basics. It's important for us to minimize corruption in all of the activities that we do to try and help get young people into the workplace and not only allow for some people to access um, some of the offerings. It's important for us to reimagine pathways with multiple characteristics, um, not just skilled or unskilled, um, but that allows young people to aspire um, and to, uh, to move between these refracted economies. Um, it's important for us to embrace innovation and to shed anachronistic jobs. I was thinking about the ILO definition of jobs and there you would have seen astrologer as a job. 
Now, it was put together, I think, in the 70s, you know, during the age of Aquarius. And I can probably see how people lobbied to get that onto the list of ILO jobs. But now we've got to lobby to get Vlogger onto ILO jobs. And we've got to get cryptocurrency trader into the ILO job. We've got to get new jobs, both big jobs, small jobs, um, onto those ILO jobs. We need to prepare young people for what's coming, what will change, and the reality of livelihoods, jobs, work opportunities, not just careers, employment, or entrepreneurship. Thank you. Thank you very much, Charlene, for this, <coughs> and Krish, for this presentation that really challenges us to, to reset and to shift our imaginations and to shift our entire ways of thinking. And I think your last point about the astrologer is, is, is at the heart of it, that we shouldn't be stuck in the categories of the past. Um, but uh, it's not my job to, to be the respondent, so I'm going to invite um, Imran, are you here? Um, yes, uh, Glenda, hi. Hi, so Imran Patel, can I invite you to respond to the presentation? Okay, just... Uh, good afternoon, colleagues. Um, and thanks to Shalene for a, a very interesting presentation. I've encountered this thinking before uh, when you presented this to the Portfolio Committee on Higher Education Science and Technology. And I think there it was also received uh, quite well. I, I think it's the kind of uh, uh, radical, uh, but very fundamental thinking grounded on a very good acknowledgement of how this world is changing that I think we need uh, more of. Uh, and I think now's the opportunity, this uh, COVID crisis has created many opportunities for us to be able to take forward some of those, those ideas. I want to uh, frame my, uh, my points from a discussing point of view around, I, I kind of buy a lot of, in fact, all of the thinking I think is great and we need to take it forward. And, and I think the, the area that I want to focus on is how do you achieve this kind of a, a change in both thinking and practice in a practical way. And one of the uh, kind of frameworks that I've increasingly found useful and, and Glenda is, is familiar with this, is the transformative innovation policy thinking around some of this here. Um, and, and I think it would be useful to, to Glenda as, a, as, as part of our work to think about that alignment, uh, the discussions we've been having around how we take the transformative innovation policy work forward. But the framework that's helpful for me in that is that there's a lot of uh, the terminology, the theoretical framework used in that, in that uh, body of knowledge is this concept of niches where there are very interesting things that are happening. I would consider yes as an example to be a, a very influential niche in a sense. These are areas where the new stuff is happening, even though the existing structures and networks and institutions are not uh, enabling it to grow. In fact, sometimes the, the kind of uh, um, um, landscape, uh, that's the language they use, they, they talk about niches, regimes and landscapes, the regimes and landscapes uh, 
uh, create uh, uh, lock-ins lock and blockages in terms of these new ideas coming forward. So there's a lot of these niches happening and you've mentioned a lot of them, Sweep South, uh, the YES program, um, the stuff that we've been working with, with Glenda, etc. What is important <clears throat> to understand in the long-term transition and this is where I'll come to it in terms of my concluding remark, is how do we protect those niches so that the niches are, are able to grow and show the new way that's being done uh, with the least amount of resistance? Because these changes come with a lot of institutional baggages. I mean, in the chat that we, we've listed, everything we've done is structured in a particular way of thinking about the economy. Even the way we define CETAs, uh, you know, it's a manufacturing CETA and it's the services CETA. This kind of thinking means you just can't adopt a, a, a refracted economies CETA framework, but I have my colleagues from DHET who can, can comment on that. It's not going to be a single step process. You need to do this in a systematic way, in a sense. Even things that I think people have raised in the chat about the designation, the the standard industry classification codes, uh, the way we do our measurement structures are all uh, lock-ins to a different way of thinking about the economy. So the first thing we need to do is find out from a research perspective is how do we identify the niches that are showing the way around these new economies? How do we protect them? How do we grow them? And how do we make sure that the pathway from the niches into influencing the regimes are as short as possible? And, 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 and some of my uh, conclusion in there is that you also have to rethink, I think you ended your, your presentation by saying these are research questions. I think the relationship between researchers and practitioners needs to change. Uh, these ideas are there and they kind of remain very interesting ideas. And so my interest is how to bring them into the policy process. And I want to give you just a, a practical example. Two, Two hours before this uh, webinar started, we were on an engagement with the minister, and I'm sure he wouldn't have a problem with us saying this, looking at, uh, at remote learning. And as we were constructing the task team around uh, um, how do we take this forward in an integrated way and just not look at the issues of the technology, the connectivity and the, and the devices, it became clear that the HSRC and the social scientists have to be part of that process from the start to be able to help the thinking. And through that process of both trying things and thinking about things, we're able to, 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 to shorten the pace of getting these new ideas. And it's just not new ideas for the sake of new ideas. Every day that passes that we further entrench existing inequalities, existing weaknesses, means that there's a, there's a direct human cost to that. And, and we need to make those decisions. Even now, as we respond to COVID, we need to keep in mind all of the time, are we reinforcing certain behaviors as in patterns if it's around food parcels? Are we giving people agency? Are we empowering people, not just with, with handouts, but with the skills and the technologies and the, and the ability To, to framework is great. I think there's a, uh, there's a lot of opportunities, not just for the, for the integrity of the ideas and, and, and the ideas that can stay in a seminar like this, but these ideas need to feed into current processes which are extremely fluid to kind of reimagine. Um, Glenda used the word reset. Um, uh, 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 the, the World Economic Forum has an undue influence on global debates. 
recently we've come across uh, them using similar terminology. So that terminology of reset will, will start gaining ground. But I think the time and the opportunity is something Sorry, Imran, you're breaking up a little bit. Kind of challenge new world uh, innovation, and I am assuming I can also indicate that uh, from a broader ministerial perspective, the higher education training, both those portfolios are crucial in giving. Uh, giving life to some of these concepts, but more in a more strategic way. And, and, and uh, we're fully committed to see how that's been done. Hopefully some of the uh, will already provide opportunities for some of these ideas to uh, um, um, policy and in action. Thank you. Sorry, I see I'm breaking up badly. I, I apologize. Your network bandwidth was low. Colleagues, thank you very much, Imran, for that. And um, I think what's very encouraging for the discussion we're having today is the way you have shown the synergies between this kind of thinking and the kinds of thinking that's going on within the Ministry of Higher Education, Science and Innovation. So let's hand over to Tash, Dr. Tashmir Ishmael Saville. And she will give us the perspective of the Youth Employment Services, service, again, I said services, my apologies, Tash, um, which is bringing together private sector um, employers and um, educators. So let's hear how YES is aligned with this kind of thinking. Over to you, Tash. Thank you. Thank you, Glenda. So uh, you had started by talking about um, uh, the design of YES, that we're a public-private partnership. We work with government, labor, and business, although we're an NPO. Uh, we were set extremely lofty goals in terms of the number of jobs that we were to create. Um, but, you know, given, given the economic situation to date, we've done 35,000 work opportunities for youth, and that is in about 15 months. Um, this is still a really big number. Uh, most people on this call understand how difficult it is to, to create uh, new jobs for, for young people in our economy. Um, the preoccupation in, in a lot of this work is not so much the, the grad unemployment number, but the, the masses and masses of young people who are not going to get into uh, uh, tertiary spaces uh, but yet have incredible um, talent and abilities that would place them uh, as, as amazing employees in, in some of these economies that Charlene has described. So when I first uh, received Charlene's paper, uh, <laughs> she remembers she sent me a draft paper really late at night. I think it might have been 11.30, so she's also a bit of a night owl. And I was so excited, I started reading the paper immediately, and I think I contacted her the next day. The, 
the, the, the description of these um, economies in, in, a ref, in this refracted style um, fits beautifully in with a way, a way to communicate to young people who don't have uh, the chance of getting uh, structurally cost-wise, you know, depending on where they're living, the, the costs of getting to varsity, distance, etc. Um, and, and this is one of the struggles we had. So, so while you were talking, I made a, a few lists on where we see real problems around career choice in, in the youth that we are dealing with. Um, aspiration, the jobs that are seen as aspirational um, are, are difficult jobs to get into and you do need a lot of qualification to get into them. So we, we need a framework that presents jobs to youth in, the way, in a way that the non-traditional aspirational jobs are, are shared. The second is exposure to career types. There's, there's a dichotomy around being a manager and a doctor or a factory worker. And there's very little exploration um, and exposure to this range of jobs that sits uh, in between those. Uh, and, and this refracted economy gives us a way of uh, showcasing and highlighting these jobs, not just in an aspirational way, but showing the ranges of jobs that, that you can create. So unlocking the imagination. Um, we, we also see uh, university education as, as some kind of poverty marker that um, you know, if I'm not going to university, there's a poverty marker. So can we create other markers of, of, of having left poverty and, and shift the mindset around tertiary education? Um, because, you know, tertiary education isn't necessarily uh, where I, we use the work of, of Joe Studwell quite, um, quite a bit um, in the design of YES. And, you know, his cross-country studies are telling us that in, in economies like ours, tertiary education is not necessarily going to give us the highest returns to development and, and income. Um, and, and also, you know, I've got a daughter who's just started her first year at UCT. And I can tell you that I couldn't make head or tail of the course choices that she was given, despite working in the industry that I work in, despite having worked at a business school. You know, I looked at some of these courses and it's incredibly complex. And so what this framework also allows us to do is really tell a story around jobs that makes it a lot more understandable to young people. So I mentioned, um, I, I did mention that um, we have a, sorry, just give me one second. Okay, we seem to have a slight problem, but here she comes. <laughs> I was fast. Um, I didn't tell everybody I was going to be on this conference call, so I needed to rush before they embarrassed themselves. Um, the, the, the idea of, of the Yes Youth app, and I've shared a little comment on that on the chat box. Uh, every Yes Youth that gets placed gets a smartphone, and I've got some of my teammates um, on the call with me. Uh, and, and this smartphone has got two zero-rated apps on it. And what we do through those zero-rated apps is we... Um, we send youth beautifully designed modules. They're stories, they're videos, they're visually very rich. And our research that we've been doing to design these behavioral modules is that storytelling and visually rich uh, material um, really speaks to young people. So when I got that paper of Charlene's, 
I immediately was able to see how, how beautifully we could visually translate giving career choices and options to young people through stories that were very memorable. People learn through rules of thumb and they remember through rules of thumb. And it's so much easier to, to visualize orange economy jobs, lavender economy jobs. Um, what we're also doing through this app is by training them through these digital modules, we're also teaching young people that you can skill yourself via a smartphone. So these are the hooks into a 4IR economy that a young person in, in, in Bushbuck Ridge suddenly starts to see, you know, through her yes job and the smartphone, that she can uh, add to her, her qualifications and her certifications through micro-credentialing because she's now understood how easily you can learn um, via this phone. So, so I think these were the things uh, that immediately hit us about the, the power of this framework to change young people's um, career choices, exposure to career choices, and to give them a much, give a much easier way to communicate this, uh, this across to them. So that's the one piece. The, the second piece um, was, was, uh, came through the, the second half of the presentation when we started to look at the way these jobs um, co connected. Uh, you know, when, when my daughter looked at psychology courses at university, she just couldn't see herself as, as a psychologist. And I sent her this job profile of the first graphic designer, female graphic designer, who designed the first emoji board um, for, for Apple. This is a whole job, people who design emojis. And you can imagine how a psychology, some kind of psychology training for people who are designing um, emoticons or, or visual stories, how those, those lock together. Um, and, and, and so if you allow me to just throw back a little to, to some of my academic background, there is, um, there's a framework, Ricardo Hausmann's uh, economic complexity framework. And in this, he dis discusses each person being a person byte, uh, B-Y-T-E, as in a tech byte. And, and a person byte has got a set of skills, but it's a very circumscribed set of skills. And when we look at aggregation of person bytes is how we start to understand how economic complexity develops. And so if we look at economically complex nations, they're able to take aggregations of amazing IP across organizations with the person bytes in those and connect it. And one of the things, one of the tricks that I feel we, we're missing and, and was, was sort of uh, sparked by, by today's conversation was how are we teaching young people with different skill sets to connect to each other? So we have a person bite who's in a community who's trying to run a business and they do great hair. How do we, how do we connect that person to, to someone else in the community who, can, who has got amazing graphic design or marketing abilities because they've come to the Yes Hub and they've done the whole Google digital skills course that teaches them how to build social media profiles. So can we, and this points back to the entrepreneurship piece where we see a real failure to, to ignite enough entrepreneurship to create jobs at community level for youth. But if we start teaching them how to aggregate their talents, and I've done this micro-credential and you've done that micro-credential, and I see someone put uh, you know, a thing up around assessments and doesn't matter. If you can do a micro-credential course that teaches you how to do a really cool social media campaign for a business, those other businesses in the community don't really care if you have an assessment. What they care for is um, 
can you build me a really great social media profile that brings customers to my business? And, and, and that, that might be one of the tricks we're missing in entrepreneurship is asking people to go it alone and try to start that business when we should be teaching them how to connect with other people who have talents that they can build a, a business around and, and the technical skills and who can help me manage my financial pieces. And these are all young people connecting their skills. This can be quite a powerful, um, a powerful way of driving entrepreneurship because we are struggling to get the private sector and to get existing companies to hire enough people. It's simply our economy is not designed like that. It is, it is a concentrated economy. The jobs are scarce and the jobs are very specifically located. So if we, if we can't figure out these mechanisms to, to get youth to create jobs amongst themselves at community level, it's going to be difficult given the sheer scale of this youth unemployment problem. We're, we're talking about communities where over 70% of young people are not employed. Um, so, so that was just something old uh, that I enjoyed about the refracted economy work and something that, that was sparked by today's discussion on how we connect all of those. So those were, those were the first, first two inputs and uh, I think we can move to questions or a bigger discussion. Those, those are two very critical points. Um, about how we have the power to change young people's perceptions and how we connect people using the technologies we have. And I think Chris showed some really useful examples there um, that can spark our thinking. Um, so I'm, I'm going to open up for chatting for questions and comments in a moment. But to start us off on that, I would like to give Sepati Mokema a chance to do a response to some of the questions that have already come up in the chat. Sepati, are you ready for that? Uh, yes. Okay. Um, thank you, colleagues. Um, one of uh, the questions that are coming up is the question of career guidance. Um, uh, this is something that Charlene uh, can uh, speak a bit more on because what I'm getting from the comments is that uh, career guidance is being uh, introduced at a better than later stage, like people that are in secondary school and in tertiary uh, institutions, as Tesh has just indicated. Um, another key point to note was the question around SDGs uh, how do we go about uh, this? Uh, research and try to include uh, the sustainable development goals. That's, that's some of the questions we've noted so far. Thank you, Sepati. Um, uh, Krish and Charlene, I'm going to open up for a couple more questions now. Um, Chris, you'll just help me see who's waving and who wants to speak, please. I'm opening up. I'm going to be quiet for a minute or three just to allow people to get themselves unmuted and get on top of the technology and wave their hand and ask their questions or make a point or comment or share um, and build on what the, the, the panelists and the respondents have said. Uh, thank you, Glenda. I see two hands in the participants' window right now. 
The first from Justin Vasaki and the second from Ila. Uh, Justin? Hi, everyone. Thanks for an interesting seminar. Um, and I don't think there's much, uh, I mean, this is such an important area of work for us to be thinking about the youth, employment, and what to do with them. Um, I have a conceptual comment um, to think through. Uh, I don't really, know, I'm not quite sure what to do with it, but that's why I'll just throw it out there for, uh, for you to deal with. Um, <clears throat> so there's a difference between what workers um, actually do and the products that they make. So you, would, you can either then define the economy by industries with, uh, using your SICK codes, or you could then look at the economy in terms of workers and their occupations. Now, when I think of refracted economies in the different colors, I'm hearing different industries. But then on the other hand, we, we're thinking about workers and, and, and where they're going, um, and that would then fit with occupations. And even Krish, when he did the uh, analysis, he was looking at occupations. And, and I, I think it's important to think through because we don't necessarily know where workers might fit in in a, new in a new economy. Things keep on changing, but they get given certain skills that they can adapt with and do. So even if I think of my own career path, I might have worked in government. I'm not sure what color that was. Um, but now I'm working more in an academic scientific space. But, but what's key is that as, as a worker, I had a certain occupation. So what I'm, I'm struggling to, to reconcile is an emphasis on jobs and occupations versus an emphasis on industries. And I'm worried that the color scheming is focusing on the industries when in fact, fact it would be better to think about it in terms of occupations. Um, yeah, so just, just something to think through, thanks. Okay, great point. I see this Ella from South Africa has indicated. Ella, EF. Okay, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, we yes, can. We can. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for this uh, um, webinar. Um, it was very informative and um, interesting. I've got two uh, questions about the present position. Um, we have uh, got thousands of people out in the community at the moment who are doing this uh, community um, screening work. What I'd like to know is were they trained and if they were trained, how can we use them in the future post-coronavirus? Uh, uh, does the training, you know, sort of give them um, enough skills to be part of the new, um, you know, health, um, public health um, initiative? or something to that effect, would they be considered for work after COVID-19? Um, so I, I just wanted to know those thousands of people who are in the field at the moment, what's gonna happen to them. And the second thing is the ECB sector. We work quite closely with the ECB sector and what a lot of people miss on is that ECB often also assists women workers in particular who have little children and have to leave little children. So it's not just ECB 
but it also serves as a creche. And often these are services that are provided by unregistered, unqualified people. And I was just wondering whether there is some way in which we could assist to make this um, more formalized, um, regulated, and uh, assist uh, those people. Uh, because at the moment, what's happening is that they are just being shut down. Okay. And thank they, you, Ella. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ella. Um, there's one more, Willy Chinyamurindi. Willy, go ahead. Unmute Willie. Willie, Willie, you're muted. You need to unmute first. Uh, Willie, I think your microphone's not working. It's still not coming through. So you might uh, have to just write your question, please, Willie. Can you write your question you. on the chat for the moment, please, Willie, because you have a technical problem. You can write okay. it on the... Oh, there we go. We can hear you now. Go ahead. Perfect. Thank you very much. I, I work at the University of Fortier, and I have um, attended some of Charlene's uh, presentations when she's um, come to Fortier. And um, I, I'm interested in the aspect of issues like reality, how they fit in in some of the discourses that we've been having. Because on, upon my observation is that um, much of what we are talking about fits within an urban type of setting. Um, in the setting that I work in, um, they, they, there's a lot of challenges, especially concerning rural unemployment. And um, I, I would love the commentary of some of the presenters, particularly bringing this to a, a rural type of setting where some of the opportunities and challenges would exist uh, with all that we've been talking. This is not to take away the fruitful engagement. I really enjoyed it, but just the reality element. Thank you. Thank Linda, you. Johan Marie wants to speak. He just can't I find the... So I'm going to take Johan Marie's question and then I'm going to pass on to Charlene and Chris to respond and then we'll do another round. Thank Johan you. Can you hear can you hear me? Perfect. Okay, okay. Um, first of all, just thank you very much, Charlene, for a very imaginative and I think very useful framework there. But I want to respond just to, uh, well, make an input to what Imran said about niches and that yes is a useful niche. But I'm working on a niche that, that I would call I yes, <laughs> uh, and that is Apprenticeship Youth Employment Scheme. Uh, and it's based on, on what a company in the free state is doing. For every three employees, it, it employs one apprentice. So it's got 75 employees and it's got 25 apprentices that it trains right up to artisan level. So it's creating jobs and skills at the same time. And uh, um, I'm a retired uh, emeritus professor from the Department of Sociology at UCT. But somehow I'm still terribly busy even though I'm retired. But it's a project I'm working on slowly and I once mentioned to Tash. And, and to Tash, uh, this point about uh, connecting, uh, that youth should connect with each other. 
I, uh, I can so agree with it. And I want to say in sociology, the most useful insight that I gained, one of them, is, is the question of the, the great strength of weak social networks. That if you just network with the people you know, we all, you all tend to know the same thing more or less. And you need to get out beyond your normal social network into weaker social networks. And to just give an example, I was doing a research project on the use of mobile phones uh, for development in Africa. And I, I knew nobody. <laughs> it was a new job. And, and someone in the English department said to me, oh, there's a professor Gary in the information systems. Maybe he can help you. I contacted him. He said, come to a seminar of mine and tell people what you want to do. I've got PhD candidates from all over Africa. So I came, I told them, and a few weeks later, uh, someone from Kenya contacted me and said, I think I can help you. And he put me in touch with a person who'd just written a book on mobile phones and their use in Africa, on M-Pesa rather, on M-Pesa in, in Africa. And, uh, and, and there I had contact to the best people, and it was about the fourth, fifth link in a very weak network where I found the strongest possible connection. So I just want to reinforce what Tash said about the value of extending your networks outside your usual circle and working with those people. Thank you. Thank you for that contribution, Johan. Um, Charlene and Chris, I'm going to pass on to you to respond. And particularly, I think it would be helpful if you could address the point made by Imran about how do we shift from niches to influence change in regimes as quickly as possible? Because I okay. think that's an important way, uh, a direction for us to move forward systematically. Um, thank you, Denda. Um, and thank you for all those comments and questions, including in the chat room. It's a really rich conversation. So for me, um, I have a, a, a strong uh, suspicion that the way to influence both at the policy level and at the grassroots level is if there are multiple voices speaking in different ways about this concept. And so what we've done in the research study is we've tried to say that we've got to synthesize and we, we've got to have a, a program of agile learning into, um, into, into policy um, and into practice. And the, the best way to do it is to have dialogues. And you can have dialogues if you're a small NGO that work with young people on the ground, in a faith community, um, in a rural area, in an urban area, you can have dialogues, but you can also have dialogues in a kind of um, a portfolio committee or a cluster meeting um, that brings together various role players. And so that's the, the really ambitious part of what we're envisaging here, is that as we, we go along, we really want to make sure that we do both. Um, and everything in between, including this relationship between industry and researchers. So researchers and industry, researchers and young people, researchers and NGOs, researchers um, and policymakers. And I want to respond at the same time to a question that um, um, uh, um, somebody else has raised in the chat room, and, and that is this issue of, you know, and Justin too, why is our current classification not good enough? Why do we think um, refracted economies will help us? Um, and it really is because when I look at the classification lists, um, Justin and Dashla and the CETA list, it's about the occupations that they list are, are legislators, professionals, um, technicians, um, elementary workers, um, 
when, when, if I think about myself as a young person, elementary occupations, or if I get described as skilled or unskilled, um, just yesterday we were looking at how we describe our workers according to the Employment Equity Act. And I, and I wonder what it does for a dignity of, a, of, of somebody, for somebody's dignity to be described as an unskilled worker or to be described as a semi-skilled worker or even to be described as a professional. Um, what does that do to a person? And I think for a lot of the, the, the work that we're doing in, in our world, um, we've got to feel that what we're doing is making some form of contribution to society. And so for me, um, describing professions um, from the point of view of purpose is different to, uh, to describing it in terms of an occupation. I think it, it stimulates our imagination. It stimulates the story um, that we bring to participating in this world. And that's what this COVID-19 crisis has done, is it has said, who are the people for whom we applaud? And how have those people been applauded in the past or not been applauded or been ignored? When we walk into grocery stores these days and we see people who are working and who are actually putting their lives at risk in order to serve us, you know, doesn't it do a different thing in terms of the dignity and the, and the esteem in which we, we hold people? And so for me, it's really important that I'm coming at this not as an economist, but as a sociologist, as a person who's trying to understand society and young people in society. And I think that's a really important piece. And I'm just going to go on to Willie's question about rurality, Willie, because we're not talking only about an urban understanding. Um, one of the examples that I like to use is that farming is a profession of the future, not just of the past, right? We all need to be able to eat and in, order to, in order to live. But there are also many parts of agriculture, which is, somewhere, which is quite progressive. So um, artisanal farming is something that is huge in the world at the moment and is growing. And so young people can be reimagined, they can be re-energized around farming because it's not just producing um, basic necessities. It's also producing things that uh, people enjoy. Um, you know, like, and, and it, we may see it as luxuries, but it's, there's an industry in truffles, for example. And so young people might be, begin to farm different kinds of products than, than their, their parents did, um, because that's what the world wants or, or, or needs. And I think that's also um, really important. And then my last point is around this career guidance issue that has come up a lot on, in the chat room. And for me, that's one of the really nice ways of, of starting um, putting some of the thinking into practice is because if you energize young people through a different form of career guidance, I mean, I don't know about your career guidance at school, but if I think about mine, it was really boring. It only spoke of about uh, the big jobs, which is why young people now speak about big jobs. It doesn't speak about the creative ways and the pathways um, and the opportunities that you can create for yourself, that you can try and progress towards, that you can um, skill yourself with, that you can go and get skilled from, from outside. So I think those are all really important um, um, elements to try to take this forward. Um, Ella had a question about the um, community screening, and I'm not sure if I know too much about it to answer. I mean, Glenda, you may know more as um, because you've been so involved with that, with the survey. 
Um, but I'm hoping that it is the beginning of integrating those 25, 10 to 25,000 people into the lavender profession. And Justin, this goes back to your point. Um, you can call somebody a community health worker, but you could also say they are part of the helping and caring professions. You can imbue their work with a sense of dignity and a sense of importance that is both motivating, that both keeps them going when the going gets tough. Um, not that makes up for, the, for how little their salary is because we really want to be able to pay people fairly. Um, but it's really about aspiration and about dignity um, in, in the workplace. And I think that's important. Um, and I'm hoping that those community health workers will be used in other ways um, going forward in, in, in our country. So Ella, that's a really good, um, um, important point that you raise. Let me stop there, Glenda. Uh, Glenda, and if I can come in. Yes, go ahead, Krish. Yeah, uh, so just on a few of the, the questions, the first one raised um, uh, by Tashmir. As she mentioned, how do we start connecting different entrepreneurs together so that we work uh, cohesively and not uh, solely as individuals? I wanted to highlight a quick example, which I mentioned in the chat as, as she spoke. Uh, in China, there's a good example of Taobao villages. Uh, so workers in, in rural areas, they, 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 they find common interests together. And then there's an app Taobao where, where they can come together. So if five people in a rural area want to make t-shirts together, uh, they join forces uh, and then they're able to sell their goods uh, as a cohesive unit online, connecting to uh, other individuals across the country. And so there, there's uh, an opportunity for, for uh, those small scale uh, entrepreneurs to come together, create one working unit and then uh, participate in the economy that way. Uh, there was a second point that I wanted to touch on uh, what Sepati had raised uh, from the chat was the linkage to the SDGs. Um, and one of the, the core elements of what we're trying to discuss here is about inclusivity, bringing everybody on board. And at the core of the SDGs is the, those indicators are meant to have, ensure that everybody is counted. And that's what we're trying to do here. Ensure that every occupation, every work uh, form that we have is recognized on the same level as every other one. And this, we need to start visualizing uh, those that are currently invisible. Uh, and equating uh, their, their status across the uh, across the board. And the, the last point I wanted to touch on uh, links to what Ila was saying about caregivers, the, those ECD workers. Um, so th that that connects to what we're trying to say in the lavender economy. It's about caring and helping. So if you're caring for somebody in the home, there's an opportunity for you to progress. And so with greater skill, you can transition from home-based care to crash-based care, perhaps to higher forms of ECD teaching and so on. But what we're trying to do is show the path uh, that exists. And so with, with, uh, with greater work that we, that we do, we'll, we'll start to externalize more of the, these professions and the paths that, that people can follow. Thanks, Linda. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm going to open up for a second round now. You can wave your hand or put something on the chat. Um, Linda? Yes. Um, we have um, a question for Tash. Somebody asked for information about the YES app. Oh, yes. There was a question. I think, what is it? How do they access the YES app? Or Yes, yes. Yeah. How do, Tash, okay. how do people access the YES app? So, 
the the Yes Act is specifically for youth that are that are placed um, around the country with Yes. They get given um, uh, an email address, and when they when they start their job, we've got a, a deal with a company that provides our phones. They load the app onto the phone at the factory, and then it gets delivered to the youth wherever they are in a country in the country, and they get recut. Um, their email address allows them to access and set a password. So, so we we haven't opened this up to to the public. Um, it's for the yes youth placed around the country. So, if you're part of the thirty-five thousand, you you qualify to get that phone. Um, eventually, we would love to be able to open it up wider. But remember, Vodacom has given us a zero rating on it. So, you know, they they've got um, obviously got uh, uh, restrictions on on how much data goes through that. Uh, and, and there was a really interesting point made by someone in the chat box earlier that if we don't figure out the infrastructural pieces you know there's there's so much job opportunity that can be created and accessed via um a digital connection um but at the moment it really is it really is uh, for those people who can afford to access so you know once we start getting more zero rated sites and better infrastructure we can do we can do so much in the space yeah, and presumably, Tash, perhaps the person who asked is someone who's running similar projects and they might want insights into mm. the material and then there would be scope for them to take it further with you, I'm sure. Absolutely. So and what the World Bank are, are doing is they're creating generic uh, modules out of our content that have a lot of the behavioral insights and guides on that curriculum. And those will be available to the public in a, in, in, in a couple of months. Great. Charlene? Linda, one of the issues that Imran raised, and it was partly an aside, but partly quite, quite relevant, and that is around remote learning and online learning. And I just wanted to make a comment about that because the COVID crisis has changed my mind about um, this issue that the president raised at the, the last State of the Nation address. He said that he wanted all kids to have tablets. And I remember thinking, and I remember talking to colleagues about how absolutely impossible that would be because people would need to have electricity and there was also the issue of safety um, and there was the issue of teachers not being equipped to help kids make the technological shift. But every now and again, the events happen which causes us to jump through um, into a new dimension. And it seems to me, um, Imran, especially now, like that idea about getting tablets into the hands of every kid in the country seems to become actually a priority. And we've got to find a way to overcome those challenges of teacher training, of um, theft and safety for the, the tablet and of electricity, etc. Because look what's happening. It's widening this rift and this divide. And at the same time, a lot of the jobs that we're talking about um, as Chris showed us those, there are so many jobs in the bronze economy that are going to disappear. And the trade unions and labor are going to fight to keep them, but it's inevitable that they're going to disappear. But if we have kids, all our kids, really equipped to embrace uh, new online ways of being and, 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 and learning, then we've really taken a, a step forward. And so I, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm only beginning to think uh, like an economist, but to try and find a way to put a tablet into the hands of every kid in the country seems to be a national priority. 
um, a solar powered one. Uh, <laughs> um, I just wanted to make that point because I think um, it's a really important piece in order for us to even begin to think inclusively around um, uh, this, this topic of refracted economies. But Charlene, your point of refracted economies points us to the economic opportunities of doing that. So it's yeah. not simply about remote learning. We've done research in rural areas where you can develop local innovation and production systems around the support that's required to train teachers, to maintain and fix iPads where they go wrong, uh, to service them, to sell the parts, etc., etc. So it can grow local production yeah. systems and local economic systems as well. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to just throw out a question. I noticed we have a number of people on board from TVET colleges and Charlene raised some important questions about the implications for TVET colleges. So I wonder if we can direct the discussion a little bit towards that. If any of the TVET uh, participants want to, to, to help us to think through some aspects or dimensions? Um, can I talk? Yes, go ahead, Guy Sorry. Harris. Guy Harris. I'm a um, council member of Pulse Bay um, College and also I think we are one of the leaders in terms of online um, education uh, as well. Um, I'm very passionate also about uh, TVET entrepreneurship and I work with Nora Clark on the uh, EDHE um, tertiary um, entrepreneurship and I'm keen to get uh, TVETs recognized and moved away from their secondary citizen status, especially when it comes to entrepreneurship. Um, Force Bay, we're lucky to have, or not lucky, we, are, we um, believe a, a key asset is our Center for Entrepreneurship Rapid Incubation at Westlake. Um, and when we do entrepreneurship, it's not just for our students, but also for the communities around the campuses that we have, which are on five locations. And we've got a very big expansion happening at Swatcliffe and a, a very big expansion happening at, at uh, um, Mitchell's Plain. Um, I'm very keen for us to see how we can leverage uh, TVETs, um, what I call the grease under the fingernail type uh, professions, the hair oil, the cooking oil, the machine oil, uh, because I think that those are increasingly important and we need to be putting our best resources, um, hardware, warmware and software uh, into that part of the tertiary, which has been neglected for too long. And the results of the South African delegations to the World Skills Competition show that we've got a long way to go to catch up. Um, I will put my contact details on the chat. And if anybody wants to uh, work with me around uh, enhancing TVET education or online or entrepreneurship, I'm mo more than happy to work with anyone. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else in the TVET space?
No. Well, I'm going to put out a call then for the third area, which was around career guidance. I think we have people in the career guidance space. Um, and I'm sure that there's a lot of stimulated thought on, on how... Sorry, somebody, did somebody indicate? I'm throwing open to the career guidance issues that are raised. And Tash has said that uh, the refracted economy's idea is very powerful because it can change young people's perception. And is this something and how can we incorporate this into rethinking the ways we do career guidance? We have a hand, Julian Rumbelow. Okay, Julian. Go ahead, Julian. Hey, thank you. Uh, firstly, thank you for the, the fascinating uh, discussion and the amazing work that's been done. And thank you to everybody for their inputs. Um, just, I mean, just picking up on this very last point that you were looking for input on there, Glenda, around, um, you know, uh, use sort of frameworks for measurement um, I think the concept around inclusion is, is, is absolutely critical I think that um, you know if the youth can be included in this process to help them define and, and understand the systems that are needed to uh, release their potential and their creative knowledge around how they perceive this future economy um, I think that that's that's really critical I also think that um, we've, uh, you know, we've got various measurement systems. I know from when I worked at CST, where Glenda is now, for a number of years, um, we looked at socio-economic objectives, which kind of uh, work in conjunction with the purpose of these different sectors. And we measured R&D and innovation uh, in terms of socio-economic objectives. And I'm just wondering if there isn't some opportunity to revisit some work that, that, that I did earlier some years ago around uh, showing where the knowledge economy and research and development investment in human resources is happening already in terms of um, uh, uh, fields of science um, which relate to uh, sort of academic uh, work. I don't know, there are some there's some cross tabs there that could work um, in, in terms of, yeah, in, in saying, you know, what skills are being developed and what industries are using those skills. I, I think that's, uh, and, and what industries are using those skills for research and development and for innovation. Um, I do have a couple of other questions, but I also want to pick up on uh, Imran Patel's um, point around theory and practice and how do we become practi practical and I think it's very important that, that in all that we do we, we, we try to practice what we're talking about. Um, so what would be awesome is to share the knowledge we have and at the start of, I know Charlene mentioned at the end of the presentation that, that the presentations can be shared but at the start advise people that it can be shared um, also, you know, we talk about the red economy, the criminal economy, the, um, 
you know, the, the illegal economy. And we sort of default onto concepts of poachers and uh, people who are sort of subsistence living um, as being illegal when there's a lot of red crime, red collar crime, <laughs> what's it? White collar crime, blue collar crime. There's a huge amount of corruption in government. You know, I think the way we frame some of these concepts are, are really are really important. Um, and, but I'm also amazed at what's happening already. I mean, we look at this Aber, what is Aberlubi, um, the fishing app that's that's a considered a, a, an essential service currently. That that's up and running. That people can gain food, uh, you know, through that. So it is amazing that we're taking these tentative steps forward. But I, I do believe that the, the framing and the dignity that Charlene uh, keeps referring back to is is incredibly important. And and the sort of bottom-up inclusive innovation approaches that could involve um, the youth on this journey are very important. Even if similar Thank frameworks you. emerge, even Thanks if the refracted economy emerges. Thank you. Thank you very much. Colleagues, I'm mindful of the time. I'm going to give Charlene, Krish, Tashmir and Imran two minutes each. Well, Charlene, you can have a few minutes more as the PI <laughs> on this work, <laughs> but to, to give your final thoughts. And Let me go Let me go last. Yeah, you go last. Krish, can you start? And then we'll give Imran and Tashmir uh, some last thoughts and then Charlene can close for us. Um, thanks, Glenda. Uh, is this, this is a a really exciting project for us to, to embark on, where we're starting to unpack many areas and starting trying to conceptualize how best to, to present this. The idea is to push the, uh, the goal of dignified work, decent work, and then ensure all people are counted. Um, and that in, in, ensures, that also includes trying to expose the types of TVET work which exists, and also to show that work is changing. And even in the, the vocational fields, uh, these are the types of jobs which are also starting to digitize and we need to change the sets of skills that we are um, offering to our, our new students uh, entering these colleges uh, and, and schools. So, um, yeah, there, there's a lot for us to do. This is just the starting phase. We've got many research questions um, and, and we'll expand on this work as we go. And it would be great to try and engage people interested uh, in this work as we go on. Thanks. Thank you. Tashmia, are you ready for your concluding comments? Yes, certainly. <clears throat> sure, Charlene. We, we, we are concerned with um, where these youth employment numbers are going to go to um, once this, this lockdown ends and we, it's not going to be normal, but um, we ex expecting a, a phased lockdown. But in this, we're already seeing some evidence of countries that are uh, countries, companies that are dropping youth jobs um, thankfully, it is not a large proportion at all. But there's a, there's a real danger that uh, we leave another generation of youth behind, um, that, that if we are not clever and quick in embracing uh, models like this that put um, fresh thinking into how we make career opportunities open to youth, how we empower them to embrace and, and enter those, uh, those pathways, um, 
outside of higher education and training because there are limitations to where that funding goes and it it doesn't reach the bulk of youth who aren't going into tertiary institutions so you know there's a big group on this and everybody's clearly interested in this kind of work we have to do something different because we've already got such a, a, a massive crisis on our hands with youth unemployment you can imagine what what COVID is going to do to that and so we must we must experiment and try everything that comes our way um, uh, to try to avoid a, a catastrophe with youth sobering points very very important Imran uh, thanks Glenda the three core challenges are poverty, inequality, and unemployment. And the center of that, the catalyst for addressing all of those three challenges in an accelerated way is youth development. So clearly the kind of radical thinking which is going to come with its own problems and its own challenges. I think whatever has at the center of its uh, framework uh, youth development, it's the reflected economy, uh, conceptualization group, needs to be privileged a lot more in the way that, that societal actors, whether it's government or industry or others, uh, think about how we emerge in the future. Um, just on, on, on uh, kind of on that, that, that point of, uh, you know, people make the comments that robotics and others, uh, you know, in the in different stage of our development. So in our reimagination, we need to it's our own experiences around what kind of innovation we can. And for me, it's a youth-based innovation for youth-based development that should uh, to become a lot more at the core of our developmental approaches in this country. Thanks. Thanks, Imran. Colleagues, um, Imran did break up a lot, but what I'm hearing is that youth need to be foregrounded in thinking about refracted economies and that we need far more youth-oriented innovation in the way we understand development in South, inclusive development in South Africa. Um, Charlene, over to you for the last word. And, and, and I want to just seg on to what Iman was saying, because in, a, in one sense, whenever we speak of innovation, we think of it in a kind of a technocratic, bureaucratic, um, industry-focused uh, uh, way. And I really believe that young people have a lot to contribute when it comes to innovation. And to, pull, uh, to kind of um, also seg on to what Tash was saying, is we need to create a sense of possibility amongst young people and telling them a story of what might be possible as somebody who works in the helping and caring industry, either as somebody who cleans surfaces to keep um, an office safe around COVID or saves lives by putting people onto a ventilator, that you're in the same industry, that you're in the lavender 
economy and that your 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 purpose is uh, is to help and to care that for me is is quite aspirational and i i want to spend the rest of well not my working career but the next few years going forward um to really make sure that our policymakers gets that message and that young people get that message at the same time i know we're going to have lots of tensions and lots of choices because one of the things that we've got to do is we've got to have people able to buy what young people have to offer but at the same time we also want to make sure that we don't consume so much that our planet um that we destroy our planet so we've got tensions and i think that going forward those tensions are going to be the tensions that are going to put intent onto our president's words of an economy that is just and fair and that we bring every capability to bear on ensuring that our economy um, is just and fair. That for me is, is a really important challenge that we've got and we've got time to think about it but we've got to as it were build the the plane while we're flying. I mean that's probably an inappropriate metaphor seeing that nobody's going to fly for the next uh, few years. Um, but that's really what we've got to do. We've got to take our, our opportunities now to get young people in and to try new things um, that includes rural young people, that includes kids who don't have access to online learning uh, to tablets, because that's the way that we are going to create a, a different world. Thank you, Charlene. Um, on that note, all that's left for me to do is to thank all the speakers. But we did say if for a last moment, if everybody can switch on their cameras and unmute, and then we can thank uh, Charlene and her team, Krish and Sepati, as well as Tash and Imran for, for this incredibly important and thought-provoking and highly integrated what's so important is how into how this discussion has integrated so many much of our thinking and allows us to work to get more forward imaginatively and creatively so on your behalf colleagues if you all want to switch on and clap and thank everyone <laughs>